Foundations of the Restoration podcast class. This is class number two, entitled The Role of the Book of Mormon in the Restoration. So this class, we are building on a simple but powerful concept, and that is that truth was restored in the order of its importance. That is a significant concept. If you want to know how valuable it is to God and to the restoration, ask yourself, well, where did he put it in the restoration timeline? The only thing that preceded the Book of Mormon was the first vision. That tells you how important the Book of Mormon is. And the other thing we ought to you know, take, for grant, take into consideration is, when does he give the doctrine of the three degrees of glory? Much later. So if you had to boil down to, I need this truth first, do you include the three degrees of glory? You don't. The Book of Mormon tells you the order of truth and its importance. So we're going to kind of use that as our theme, and I'm going to carry on this idea with rings, that the very first restored item, and then the second, and then the third, and then we'll branch out a little bit. But I want you to kind of, I'm always going to put that circle up first, because what was restored first? What is the most important truth in the possession of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Before priesthood comes around, before temple, before ceilings, before missionary work, before the church of Jesus. What came first, Liam? Therefore, what should be the foundation of everything that we do in the restoration? Every one of these rings is going to do what? Clarify my relationship with Heavenly Father. Why is there priesthood? So I can do cool things? No, why is there priesthood? So I can get into his presence. Everything is going to come back to this first circle. And I'm going to do that with the Book of Mormon today. But we're going to leave that circle up every time to come back to the foundation of the restoration is the knowledge of Heavenly Father. What did God declare in just a few words? First word, I know who each of you are individually. He was declaring, I am not your creator. I am your father. The relationship between man and God is parent to child. And then what was the second thing he's saying? I'm going to send you Jesus. Jesus will help you get back to my presence. So everything is, where's Jesus? Where do I find him? How do I hear him? All right, so after first vision, what comes next? What's the next circle we're going to talk about? In the foundations of the restoration, what's the next foundation? The coming forth of the Book of Mormon came forth. Joseph was 14. He has the first vision. Three years later, Moroni comes and introduces the idea of the Book of Mormon. Four years later, he gets it out and he starts translating. Now, this is really difficult because there's a whole cornerstone class on what does the Book of Mormon provide in the Restoration? What truths does it teach? What does it restore? It will, <clears throat> every one of you who want to graduate from any church organization, including institute, will have to take that class. So I don't want to step on that class's toes. So tonight we're going to ask the question, from the perspective of the timetable and the unfolding of the Restoration, what role does the Book of Mormon play? 
And I think most of the people in this room are pretty innocent as to the incredible, powerful role it plays. I don't think I fully understand the role the Book of Mormon will play in ushering in the Savior. I think it's just starting. So we're going to do our very best to say, what role does the Book of Mormon play in the restoration? Not jump into it looking for its truths. Now, that being said, can I just, let's go to the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon. First Nephi chapter one. I don't know if you've ever seen this beautiful little pattern, but tell me what happens to Lehi in chapter one. First Nephi chapter one, verse 10. Liam, He's, he has a vision and in his vision, He's handed what? What is he handed in his vision? A book. Do you see the irony? Chapter 1 of the Book of Mormon talks about Lehi being handed a book. You see the pattern? The book Lehi was handed is a pattern of you and I opening the Book of Mormon to the first page. We have been handed that same book. And commanded to what? We have, Go to verse 11. They handed him a book and bade him to read. You see this? You see a beautiful way to open the Book of Mormon, right? You have been handed a book, and I'm asking you to read it. And then the promise, probably one of the greatest promises you need to know from the very beginning. If you'll read verse 12, you'll be filled with the Spirit. If you will read, you will be filled with the Spirit. Just read the book. One of my biggest pet peeves is it is the only book I know that is criticized by people who've never read it. If you want to be critical of the Book of Mormon, what should you do first? You should read it. Just open up the book and read it. And if you'll read, you'll get the Holy Ghost. Now watch what happens next. What does Lehi read in the book? Verse 13. Warnings. Tell me what you're going to find in the book that Heavenly Father has handed you. Warnings. Read the book and find the warnings. Now, if we can get, I don't, I don't know how, we're going to get, how far we're going to get today, but one of the roles the Book of Mormon plays is it comes forth in a day where it has all the answers needed for that day. Does Mormon, Mormon's producing gold plates, right? How many Nephites had the gold plates when he was done with them? Was he writing a book for his people to read? So the Nephites may have had maybe a copy of King Benjamin's talk. Maybe they had the sermons of Alma, but did the Nephites ever have the gold plates? So who was he writing to? So everything he put on that book, everything he included was because of his Syriac eyes and he saw our day. So you want to get more out of the Book of Mormon? Read the warnings. What is Mormon warning you about? And that is that whole other class that you're going to take. All right, verse 14, what else are you going to find in the Book of Mormon? Great and marvelous things that are going to cause you to do what? 
O Lord God, O God, great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Thy throne is high above the heavens, thy power and goodness and mercy are over all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, what will the good things of God tell you? What will the good things of the Book of Mormon teach you? Have you ever thought about the miracles of the Book of Mormon? You read the Old Testament, there's a zillion miracles, right? Oil gets multiplied, the sun is held still, water is parted. You read the New Testament, and there's all sorts of miracles. You read the Book of Mormon, there's only one miracle repeated over and over and over again. It's the same miracle. We don't see a lot of blind people receiving their sight. We don't see water parted or walked on. What is the miracle of the Book of Mormon? And I probably, salvation is probably the greatest. But when the Book of Mormon talks about a miraculous event, let me give you a couple of examples. Nephi before his brethren when he want, they want to kill him. Abinadi before the priests of Noah. The stripling warriors. Samuel the Lamanite up on top of the wall. Every time the Book of Mormon talks about a miracle, what's the point of the miracle? Now read the rest of verse 14. What is the miracle of the Book of Mormon? God will not suffer those who come unto him. Their preservation, divine preservation, is the message of the miracles of the Book of Mormon. You read the Book of Mormon and you will know that God is going to take care of you. Doesn't mean you're going to have an easy life. That's not his purpose. But God is going to take care of you. Last verse of chapter 1, after introducing this whole thing, what does Nephi conclude? The tender mercies are upon the Lord. The tender mercies of the Lord are upon all those whom he hath chosen to bring deliverance. Now, is there anyone in the Book of Mormon who cries out for the Lord's help and doesn't get it? Does a rebellious Alma the Younger a forgotten Zoram, a wicked Lamoni? Is there anyone that cries out for mercy and doesn't get it? Those are the good newses. Now, of all the good news, what's the most important truth that the Book of Mormon is going to teach? Verse 19. What does Lehi read in the book and know and go out and prophesy? What is the greatest of all the roles the Book of Mormon plays in the Restoration? It is the foundation of our knowledge of Jesus and His covenants. The Book of Mormon is the foundation of what we know. Now, just a glimpse of that. We'll save this for the other teachings and doctrines of the Book of Mormon class, but can you name one thing? Let me, let, I know you could name a zillion. Allow me to just point out one. Let me point out one truth you know about Jesus that is not revealed in the Bible. Let's turn to Alma chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, or sorry, 11 and 12. Alma 7, 11 and 12. As part of his agony, as part of his atoning sacrifice, he not only paid the price for our transgressions, 
But Jesus came to know every single human experience. He shall go forth suffering pain of every kind. Find that phrase, of every kind. Jesus suffered pain of every kind. Affliction of every kind. Temptation of every kind. Now, when we speak of Jesus and the atonement, we use the word infinite, right? So if he experiences pain of every kind, may I suggest that that was infinite in two directions. Let me take breaking of my arm, just the breaking of my arm. How many ways did Jesus suffer a broken arm? Every single possible way you can break your arm, he suffered. Now, if, I've ever, if you've ever broken your arm, it was probably, what, six months out of, or six weeks out of con, con, condition? Maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little. How long did Jesus suffer every single one of those breaks of his arm? An infinite period of time. So, no matter how you break your arm, he knows exactly what it's like. Now, do you see what we know about Jesus? Let me push that a little bit. <clears throat> Has he been raped? Has he had an abortion? Is there a disease he hasn't had? Is there an addiction he hasn't felt and known? Has he been depressed? Has he held every single mental illness you can possibly have? There is nothing in the human condition he has not suffered for an infinite period of time. Now why? End of verse 12. Tell me why. I love the word sucker. I think that's a great one. But give me other words that he may know how to strengthen, deliver, comfort, run to, judge, save. Does Jesus know how to judge us? By experience, doesn't he? Now, that's just one example, but one of the main purposes of the Book of Mormon is to reveal Christ, is to lay the foundation of what we know about Jesus. It is the revealer of Christ. Now, can I just, let me just give my own personal observation here. You've all watched people leave the church. Raise your hand if someone you love has left the church recently. Okay, put your hand down if they've joined another church. Interesting. Why is that? Why is it? I've noticed that for many years. People leave the church and they don't join other churches. I have a theory. I have a theory, and the theory is this, the Book of Mormon revealed Christ 
And when they leave the church, they can't find him anywhere else. And so they just don't go. I don't think we fully understand what we know about Jesus because of that book. Purpose number one, the book lays out the foundation of what we know about Christ, what we have to believe in order to be saved by him. Now that subject is for other classes, but we've got to list that first, don't we? Now let's do this one. So I'm just going to simply say the book reveals Christ. Now, what I want to do is, what does the role of the Book of Mormon play in the Restoration? And then if we have time, I'd love to say, as you are participants in the Restoration, what does the book invite you, what role does it invite you to have in your personal life? Not in the book, but using the book in your personal life. That's more appropriate for this class. What role does the Book of Mormon invite you to make of it. I don't know of another book that prophesies of itself like the Book of Mormon does. But let's do this one first. Turn with me to Doctrine and Covenants section 20, which we will use extensively in a couple weeks. I believe I, we consider section 20 to the kind of the constitution of the church. And so I, in my scriptures, I've broken it down into Article 1, Article 2, Article 3, Article 4. It is the constitution of the church. And one of the things we'll see in the Constitution is that it, is, it lays upon the knowledge of Christ. The Book of Mormon is the source of knowledge. But I want to turn to verse, uh, okay, section 20, verse 11. Section 20, verse 11. The Lord says, I'm sending forth the Book of Mormon, and it's going to do two significant things. Number one is starting to happen. The Book of Mormon will save the Bible. If we had more time, we could talk about the, how that's happening now. But the Book of Mormon will save the Bible. The Book of Mormon will prove to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true. That, I think, is a fullness that's coming some other day. But I want to focus on the rest of that verse. The Lord sent the Book of Mormon to give credibility to the restoration. He knew that this restoration would need something concrete, something significant to give credibility Imagine if Joseph Smith simply said, hey, I've seen God and I'm the new prophet. Everyone follow me. With nothing else to hand them that would give any credibility to what he said. Do you see the brilliance of what the Lord did? I'm going to show you that I spoke to Joseph Smith. I'm going to show you that there is in fact a restoration going on by doing what? The end of verse 11. One of the main roles that the Book of Mormon plays is to establish the credibility of the restoration. It proves that God does inspire men and call them to this, His holy work in this age and generation. 
Now allow me to be a little bit more temporal for just a moment. If I were to say that A equals B and B equals C and C equals D and D equals E, do I have five variables? I don't. I have one. I don't need to spend a lot of time finding F, right? I shouldn't need to establish time and effort and go on a quest to decide what, or sorry, E or D or B. All I need to know is what? A. A. The Lord says, I'm going to give you one test. And I would say that B here is Joseph. A lot's being said about Joseph today. He's in the news a lot, just like Moroni said he would be. And can I say that if there's no way it all, it's all true. If what the critics say about Joseph Smith and what we say about Joseph Smith, they can't possibly all be true. So the Lord says, look, you don't have to figure out Joseph. You don't have to go back in time and meet him and talk to him. You don't have to solve B. And I know a lot of people are trying to solve B, but you don't have to solve B. C is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Is it God's church or not? We don't need a showdown between Russell Nelson and Pope Francis. You know, like the days of Elijah where everyone builds an altar and calls down fire from heaven and we'll know who's the real prophet. Not going to happen. Because you don't need to solve C. As, as, as much as people are trying to solve C, proving whether or not the church is true, true is a foolish, how do I say it this way? Not a fruitful quest on its own. It's a fool's endeavor. So what would D be? D are its doctrines. Now, if you go down to Salt Lake at conference time and listen and take the pamphlets that they hand out, if you go visit all the anti-Mormon websites, where do they spend their time? D. They spend their time in D. Let me prove to, the, to you that the doctrine of whatever, that the Mormon doctrine of this is false. That's a fool's endeavor. It's never going to come to fruition on its own. God didn't give us five equations. He gave us one. Now, just for the sake of completion, what is E? Jesus is the Christ. How many people on earth do not accept Jesus? as the Christ, most. And could we, is there a test? Is there a pretty simple test 
that verifies that Jesus is the Messiah? Is it the Old Testament? But everyone trying to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the, the, old, the Messiah is using what? The Old and New Testaments. There's a better test. God has not given us five equations. He's given us one. What is the one equation he's given us? The Book of Mormon. I don't need to go back to the 1800s to test if Joseph was a prophet. I just need the Book of Mormon. Because if the Book of Mormon is true, what does that establish of B? A wicked man could not have produced a true book. And a righteous man wouldn't have tried unless God commanded him. What do you know of C if the book is true? If, if, if A is true, C is true. Is the only, it is the restored truth. How do you prove there was? Not prove. I don't, I'm trying to stay away from that word. But how do you establish the reality of an apostasy? That keys and authorities were lost. You can't prove an apostasy, can you? You can't, you can't establish that someone doesn't have authority. So what you do is you establish that there was a restoration. Because if there wasn't a restoration, what do you know? There had to have been an apostasy needing a restoration. And what establishes the reality of the restoration? The Book of Mormon. Do you see, sometimes, <clears throat> I gotta be careful. Sometimes I engage in conversations with anti-Mormons. And I point out, you're a fool, <laughs> you're an idiot. Allow me to help you with your argument. If you want to prove the entire system false, every doctrine we espouse, every leader we have, every key, every authority, temples, everything, the whole lot, you want to disprove the whole thing and just burn it all up, all you have to do is what? Show that the Book of Mormon is a fabrication of the 1800s that it was written by Joseph Smith and not anciently. Now that should not be a hard task, should it? There is a scene in Julius Caesar. Uh, let me read it. There's a scene in Julius Caesar I don't have it, where it says, lo, the clock has struck. Simple little sentence, lo, the clock has struck. And that sentence is clear proof that that play was not written in the days of Julius Caesar. Because why? They didn't have clocks. They didn't have clocks. So for someone to have written a clock into the play clearly dates it in the 1400s. So shouldn't there be ticking clocks in the Book of Mormon that make it obvious that it was written in the 1800s? It shouldn't be difficult to tear down the Book of Mormon and throw this whole thing out the window. 
You don't need to spend time with doctrines. You don't need to spend time with the structure of the church. You don't need to tear down Russell Nelson or Dallin H. Oaks. You want to destroy the whole thing? What do you do? You have one equation. Now, why are we still having this conversation after nearly 200 years? Because no one has ever been able to credibly do it. Every time they try, guess what they discover? Just the opposite is true. Just the opposite is true. Let me just give you a little taste of that, one of my favorites. Many early critics of the Book of Mormon believed it lacked any literary merit whatsoever. For instance, one man claimed that Joseph Smith was a blockhead and that the Book of Mormon was the most gross, the most ridiculous, the most imbecile, the most contemptible concern to be palmed off upon a society as a revelation. Yet over time, even some of the Book of Mormon's most skeptical critics have felt compelled to change their tune. For instance, Joseph's famous biographer Fawn Brody saw him as a mythmaker of prodigious talent, and Harold Bloom, a Yale-trained literary scholar, considered Joseph Smith to be a religious genius. This dramatic shift may lead some to wonder, how did Joseph the blockhead suddenly transform into Joseph the genius in the eyes of his critics? In truth, this change had little to do with Joseph himself and much more to do with a 588-page book that he dictated to his scribes in less than three months. As people began to analyze the text more carefully, it became clear that it was far more complex and sophisticated than most had ever imagined. What makes the Book of Mormon's sophistication so remarkable is that it can be demonstrated on so many different levels. The text has over 200 named characters, over 150 named locations, multiple migrations, distinct cultures, three calendar systems, a system of weights and measures, complex source texts, genealogies, lineage histories, political histories, authentic legal cases, realistic battles, multiple literary genres, embedded flashbacks, brilliant doctrinal discourses, numerous fulfilled prophecies, and well over a thousand proposed intertextual relationships and Hebrew literary elements. Amazingly, these features are all intricately woven together into a coherent narrative, which is essentially free from error. For instance, the Book of Mormon has over 600 passages of geographic relevance scattered throughout its text, and yet virtually every city, land, body of water, hill, or region maintains a consistent spatial relationship with other geographic features. Another example of consistency comes from the lengthy genealogical record found in the Book of Ether. The first chapter introduces a list of 30 different kings beginning with Ether and going back to Jared. This list then serves as a framework for the rest of the book, which precisely chronicles the reigns of its kings, except in reverse order. Trying to keep track of the various sets of plates through their transmission through prophetic caretakers and how they are all tied together can be a formidable task. Yet careful analysis has shown that the source texts of the Book of Mormon have been masterfully abridged into a coherent and unified record. In the Book of Helaman, Samuel the Lamanite prophesied of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, the creator of all things from the beginning. This 21-word name title happens to be a verbatim quote from King Benjamin's speech given nearly 250 pages earlier thus offering a remarkable example of the Book of Mormon's intertextual relationships.
Chapter 17 through 27 in the Book of Alma actually contain a flashback within a flashback, allowing readers to view the destruction of Ammonihah from two different perspectives. Yet these separate narrative threads are expertly woven together and seamlessly converge back into the original storyline. In Alma 11, we find a developed system of weights and measures. Not only does it have parallels to ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian systems, but its units of exchange are surprisingly practical. The Book of Mormon contains a number of uniquely developed doctrines, such as the Plain of Salvation, despite the fact that each prophet adapted these core doctrines to his people's various circumstances. It is clear that they shared a very nuanced and consistent set of related theological ideas. Perhaps most impressive of all are the Book of Mormon's variety and quantity of Hebraisms, or features typical of the ancient Hebrew literary tradition and culture. These Hebraisms are consistent with the text's claimed Israelite background, and many of them could be quite sophisticated. For instance, the entire chapter of Alma 36 is a unified chiasm, which introduces 17 key concepts and then repeats them in reverse order. Another parallel structure called gradation repeats each successive concept to create a unity of ideas and build up to a climactic conclusion. At least 50 types of poetic, grammatical, or literary Hebraisms have been identified in the Book of Mormon. Many of them show up in the dozens, and some of them, like chiasmus, show up in the hundreds. This brief sampling can hardly convey the full depth and breadth of the Book of Mormon's impressive complexity, but it's enough to demonstrate that the book is anything but ridiculous, as many early critics believe. Some have even compared the Book of Mormon with its immersive world and characters to popular fantasy novels such as J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Yet, to put things in perspective, Tolkien was an English professor who spent decades developing and revising the world of Middle-earth and the characters who inhabited it. In contrast, Joseph Smith was an uneducated farmer who dictated the entire Book of Mormon, in the presence of multiple witnesses, in no more than 74 working days, without any notes or reference materials, without any substantive revisions, and without relying on scribes to help him remember where he had left off after interruptions. Whether a genius or not, it seems highly improbable that anyone, even a trained literary scholar like Tolkien, could have created and then flawlessly juggled so many complex features under these conditions. Yet somehow, the young 23-year-old Joseph Smith accomplished it, without any prior literary experience to speak of. As LDS scholar Daniel Peterson has noted, the intricate structure and detailed complexity of the Book of Mormon seem far better explained as the work of several ancient writers using various written sources over the space of centuries than exploding suddenly from the mind of a barely educated manual laborer on the American frontier. For this reason, the Book of Mormon's complexity, consistency, and sophistication provide excellent evidence that it truly was translated by the gift and power of God just as Joseph Smith repeatedly testified. What do we know about it? We know he was 23 years old when it was published. We know the original book was 588 pages. He produced it in a single draft in about 70 days in the presence of multiple witnesses with no source material and never once went back and made major edits. Can any one of those be said of Tolkien or any author that produced a large book comparable to the Book of Mormon? Now, do you see the position it holds? I know we don't necessarily get into proof, and we don't necessarily, that's not, but the Lord gave credibility to the restoration by giving us a Book of Mormon.
You just, there's no other way to explain it. I uh, had an interesting experience in my mission. I went to Mexico City. I went to Mexico, which is highly Catholic. And we, I, I was in the mountains. I was probably the first missionary in thousands of years to be in that area. And we found this little group of Bible students, and they loved to study the Bible, and they were so grateful to have someone guide them. And so we started with about 10. The next time it was 20. Then it was 40. Pretty soon we had 80. Then we had 100 people coming. And we didn't, we couldn't teach them all. They were so hungry for truth. Then one day we invited a guest. Um, the only other LDS person in the whole village, she was an intern at the hospital. And she came. And the next meeting, there were five people. We went from about 100 to five. So we kind of tracked down the, the leader of the group and said, what happened? Well, we thought you were the truth, but clearly you're not. And I said, well, <laughs> wait a minute, what do you mean? Well, that girl you brought, she's a member of your church, right? She wore pants and an earring and short hair. And she opened up the Bible and said, see, right here, women don't wear pants. Right here, women don't wear earrings. Right here, women don't cut their hair. Now, what do you do? Say the Bible's wrong? Outdated? What do you do? I don't have to solve that equation. You remember the only equation you have to solve is A. So I asked her, is the Book of Mormon true? She said, I believe it is. Well, if the Book of Mormon's true, then what do you know about Joseph Smith? He was a prophet. What do you know about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? I have to conclude that it's true. What do you know about the current leaders and the prophets and the practices of the church? And I happened to have a picture of Flora Benson, wife of Ezra Taft Benson at the time. And guess what? She had short hair and she was wearing earrings. And I said, do you, if, if that is the current standard, if that is the Lord's current standard for today, what do you think the prophet's wife would do. And the next week we had 120. <laughs> and it just was such a powerful reminder that I don't have multiple equations to solve. I have one equation. And once I know the book is true, I know the whole package is true. And that's the role that the book plays in our, in our day. And that is a powerful, significant thing. Turn with me to Moses chapter 6. Let me share with you a prophecy that Moses, that um, Enoch gave. Pearl of Great Price, Moses chapter 7. Sorry, not 6, Moses 7. I love Moses 7. Moses 7, we get to hear the earth speak. And we get to hear the earth groan. And we get to know that the earth is struggling. And there's things that the earth 
is asking for. For example, let's read verse 58. And again Enoch wept and cried unto the Lord, When shall the earth rest? When shall the earth rest? Verse 60. As I live, even so will I come in the last days, in the days of wickedness and vengeance, to fulfill the oath which I have made unto you concerning the children of Noah. And the day shall come that the earth shall rest. But before that day, the heavens shall be darkened and the veil of darkness shall cover the earth and the heavens shall shake and also the earth and the great tribulation shall be among the children of men. But my people will I preserve. How? Righteousness will I send down out of heaven. So think about everything that we're about to do in this class that comes down from heaven. Almost every other circle we put up here comes down from heaven, except for one circle. What's the only circle that doesn't come down? This circle, the book. Righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth. To bear testimony of mine only begotten. There it is. The main purpose of the Book of Mormon is to establish the truth of Jesus Christ his resurrection from the dead. And then he says, the resurrection of all men and righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood to gather out mine elect. What is our greatest tool of missionary work? Those of you who served a mission, tell me what you did. You just hand them the Book of Mormon and say, read it. And let me know when you're done. <laughs> and I'll come talk to you and answer your questions. It is the flood. It is the tool. It is what gives the resurrection credibility. It is the heart and soul of what we have. It is how we know who God is. The Book of Mormon came after the first vision. It is one of the greatest tools at your disposal. Now, before we go, can I just very quickly allow it to testify to you of the role that it plays or should play in your life? We could do this for hours. We'll just be really quick. Turn with me to 1 Nephi chapter 8, the tree of life. 1 Nephi chapter 8, let's see if the book can teach us something about its role in all of our lives in the tree of life. Now, I like to draw it like this. I put a circle in the middle and then four boxes on the outside, but the circle kind of takes the corners of the boxes. There are five major images of the tree of life. Verse 10, what's the main one? the tree, and what's its purpose? To make you happy. That is the love of God. But there is an imitation tree. There is a fake tree that fools people into thinking there's an imitation happiness. There's God's truth 
and the love of God, and then there's the imitation. And many people are fooled by an imitation. That's a major theme in the scriptures. Don't be fooled by imitation happiness. Money is not an imitation happiness. No one really gets to the building because if you're fooled by the imitation, where do you end up? In the river. Now, Heavenly Father says, let me help you. And he gives us a rod. He gives us a rod. Now, verse 19, he tells us that the rod has three purposes. What are the three purposes of the rod of iron? Okay, let me get there, sorry. Let me get to eight. Okay, verses 19 and 20. Let me, get, let me point out the three purposes of the rod. Number one, no one can draw all three. I love that our artists try, but you can't draw all three. You can pick one, but you can't draw all three at the same time. So you have to see these as separate images. Why would you put a rod of iron along the bank of a river? It's a barrier. Now later it becomes a guide. But the first is a barrier. The Book of Mormon is a barrier. Now watch the brilliance of what it's doing. The Book of Mormon is a barrier to the river. No one falls into the river who holds on to the rod. It's not possible. Go to chapter 15, verses 23 and 24. If you hold on to the rod, you cannot fall into the river. Cannot. Someone read verses 23 and 24. Abby? And they said unto me, What meaneth the rod of iron which our father saw that led to the tree? And I said unto them that it was the word of God. And whoso would hearken unto the word of God and would hold fast unto it, they would never perish. Neither could the temptations and the fiery darts of the adversary overpower them unto blindness to lead them away to destruction. Neither could, neither could. If you will hold on to the rod, you cannot fall into the river. It is a barrier to the river. Now back in first Nephi, what's number two? Where is it taking you? Not to where? In other words, holding on to the rod will do what? Reveal the foolishness of the invitation. Holding on to the rod will reveal the foolishness of the invitation, imitation. I will not be deceived because I'm going to the tree and not to the building. And number three, it will keep me on the path that leads to the tree. Do you see what it just did? The rod will keep you out of the river, away from the building, and lead you to the tree. Now here's the problem. What did I leave out? What's the fifth image of the tree of life? The mist of darkness. The mist of darkness. 
Now, I draw it like this because the mist blocks all these others, doesn't it? The mist blocks the tree. There are mists in your life that hide the love of God from you. Sometimes in your life, you cannot see that God loves you because you are blinded by a mist. Can you name one? Pain and suffering is often a mist that hides people from the love of God. I cannot see that God loves me because I'm hurting. But how do you get through to the tree even when you can't see that God loves you? You hold to the rod. Okay, what's building blindness? What does the mist do over here? It doesn't hide the people that are laughing at me, right? But what does it hide? The foundation. There is no foundation. That building is about to crumble down. What is it hiding? The mist hides the danger of the situation. No one would go into a building where if they could see that it didn't have any foundation. Building blindness is when you are blind to the danger. All of these become major themes in the Book of Mormon. Zenith is building blind. He wanted so badly to live where he wanted to live, he made a really bad deal with the king of the Lamanites. And all of us are screaming out saying, don't do it! It's a trap! But why does he say he did it? His overzealousness, his blind, he was blind to the, 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 the danger. Okay, what about this one? What does the mist always hide? The consequences of letting go and being fooled by an imitation. If we really made an honest beer commercial, what would we need to include? All of the consequences that are going to come into your life if you go down this route. That doesn't sell beer, does it? So we, we need to hide that if we're going to do it. So do you, do you see river blindness? Let's hide the consequences. Let's hide the danger. Let's hide the love of God. Now, this is the one I want to talk about. Do you see the dilemma the Book of Mormon has? The Book of Mormon has a major dilemma. How do I get through a mist when I can't see the love of God? How do I get through a mist when the danger is being hidden? How do I get through a mist where I can't see the consequences? The rod. But... I can't see the rod. Do you see the dilemma? The Book of Mormon is the solution to so many problems. But why can't the world reach out and grab the Book of Mormon? Because they're blind to it. The world can't see the solution to their blindness. They're blind to the solution to their blindness. Do you see the dilemma? The Lord sent a solution into the world. There it is. Grab it and it will lead you to the tree. But the, people, the world isn't grabbing it. No way the Book of Mormon succeeds on its own. Without... The solution to the dilemma. What is it that people need to take off enough of the blinder to grab the rod that will then take off the blinders? Well, let's play out the Book of Mormon, okay? 
Let me just throw out some scenarios and you begin to see if you can see a pattern. Nephi says, wait a minute, my dad's dream was so impressive, I want to know more. Enos went to hunt beasts and the words of his father sunk deep into his heart. Lamoni was a wicked man until all of a sudden someone won his heart. In a moment of agony, Alma cries out and says, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. Where did he get that idea? Now, do you see a pattern? The Book of Mormon has a dilemma, but the Book of Mormon poses the solution, right? What's the solution? Let's use Lamoni as an example. What got Lamoni to ask about God, which led to his conversion? Ammon's friendship. What is going to happen? What needs to happen in the life of people who are blind to the solution to their blindness? There's the solution right there. And they're blind to it. What's going to have to happen in the life of that person if they ever are going to make it to the tree and grab the rot? Someone else. Someone with a testimony has to be a temporary rod to hold their hand through the mist until they get to the real rod and then they can grab it. And once they grab it, they can get through the mists on their own. Do you see what I'm trying to say? If the Lord sent the Book of Mormon alone and then stood back, would the world suddenly be converted? The only way this works, the only way the restoration works with the Book of Mormon is if he sends what else? You. He sent you. No way the Book of Mormon can do its job without you. Without what you do with your friends. And testify and show and teach. Who did it for you? Why are you here? How did you know to grab onto a rod? I guarantee it was probably someone else in your life, wasn't it? Someone grabbed your hand, grabbed the rod, and put them together. Now, what's your turn? What's your job? If this restoration is going... I, I love pointing out the role the Book of Mormon plays in the restoration, but all of this is moot unless what? You do your part. Do you see the power? Take the challenge. Who brings up religion? Ammon or Lamoni? Ammon won his heart. And then Lamoni began searching. Grabbed his own rod. Now, does Lamoni end up with a rod? All by, does he end up holding the rod all for himself? But that was because someone he loved grabbed his hand, grabbed the rod, and put them together. Do you see 
the dual nature of what I'm trying to suggest. God placed the Book of Mormon to do its role. It is a powerful establishment of the restoration. You cannot explain its coming forth any other way than to simply say, Joseph, exactly what he said. Therefore, you don't have five equations to solve. You have one equation. But no one else will solve that equation without a little help. Be the help. Of that I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Foundations of the Restoration podcast class. This has been class number two entitled, The Role of the Book of Mormon in the Restoration. Thank you.